The Court of Indian Offenses is a trial court with jurisdiction over Native Americans where there are no tribal courts. Six months after Merle Denesby, a member of the Navajo tribe, pleaded guilty to an assault charge in the Court of Indian Offenses, a federal grand jury indicted him for aggravated sexual assault for the exact same event that led to his assault charge in the Court of Indian Offenses and was subsequently found guilty. He challenged his prosecution in federal court, arguing that it violated the Double Jeopardy Clause of the Constitution. The Court of Indian Offenses is, after all, a federal agency. The district court ruled against Denesby, and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit affirmed. The question before the Supreme Court in this case was whether a prosecution in the Court of Indian Offenses triggers the Double Jeopardy Clause of the Constitution. The court said, no, it did not. And now, the June 2022 opinion of the court in Denesby v. United States. Justice Barrett delivered the opinion of the court. The Double Jeopardy Clause protects a person from being prosecuted twice for the same offense. An offense defined by one sovereign is necessarily different from an offense defined by another, even when the offenses have identical elements. Thus, a person can be successively prosecuted for the two offenses without offending the clause. We have dubbed this the dual sovereignty doctrine. This case presents a twist on the usual dual sovereignty scenario. The mine run of these cases involves two sovereigns, each enforcing its own law. This case, by contrast, arguably involves a single sovereign, the United States, that enforced its own law, the Major Crimes Act, after having separately enforced the law of another sovereign, the Code of the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe. Petitioner contends that the second prosecution violated the Double Jeopardy Clause because the dual sovereignty doctrine requires that the offenses be both enacted and enforced by separate sovereigns. We disagree. By its terms, the clause prohibits separate prosecutions for the same offense. It does not bar successive prosecutions by the same sovereign. So even assuming that petitioner's first prosecutor exercised federal rather than tribal power, the second prosecution did not violate the Constitution's guarantee against double jeopardy. Part 1 Section A In 1882, Secretary of the Interior H. M. Teller wrote to his department's Office of Indian Affairs, now known as the Bureau of Indian Affairs, to suggest that the office formulate certain rules for the government of the Indians on the reservations. 
In response, the Commissioner of Indian Affairs adopted regulations prohibiting certain acts and directing that a court of Indian offenses be established for nearly every Indian tribe or group of tribes to adjudicate rule violations. Given their basis in what is now the Code of Federal Regulations, the courts are sometimes called CFR courts. Today, most tribes have established their own judicial systems, thereby displacing the CFR courts. But some tribes, often due to resource constraints, have not. Five CFR courts remain, serving 16 of the more than 500 federally recognized tribes. Their stated purpose is to provide adequate machinery for the administration of justice for Indian tribes in certain parts of Indian country where tribal courts have not been established. The department's assistant secretary for Indian affairs appoints CFR court judges called magistrates, subject to a confirmation vote by the governing body of the tribe that the court serves. The assistant secretary may remove magistrates for cause of his own accord or upon the recommendation of the tribal governing body. Unless a contract with the tribe provides otherwise, a department official appoints the prosecutor for each CFR court. CFR courts have jurisdiction over two sets of crimes. First, federal regulations set forth a list of offenses that may be enforced in CFR court. In addition, a tribe's governing body may enact ordinances that, when approved by the assistant secretary, are enforceable in CFR court and supersede any conflicting federal regulations. The reservation of the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe spans over 500,000 acres in southwestern Colorado, northern New Mexico, and southeastern Utah. The tribe has more than 2,000 members. It has not created its own court system, so it makes use of the Southwest Region CFR Court. The tribe has, however, adopted its own penal code, which is enforceable in that court. A violation of the tribal code lies at the heart of this case. Merle Denespi and V.Y., both members of the Navajo Nation, traveled to Toyak, Colorado, a town within the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation. While the two were alone at a house belonging to Denespi's friend, Denespi barricaded the door, threatened V.Y., and forced her to have sex with him. After Denespi fell asleep, V.Y. escaped from the house and reported Denespi to tribal authorities. An officer with the Federal Bureau of Indian Affairs filed a criminal complaint in CFR court. That complaint charged Denespi with three crimes, assault and battery, terroristic threats, and false imprisonment. Denespi pleaded guilty to the assault and battery charge 
and the prosecutor dismissed the other charges. The magistrate sentenced Denespi to time served, 140 days imprisonment. Six months later, a federal grand jury in the District of Colorado indicted Denespi on one count of aggravated sexual abuse in Indian country, an offense covered by the Federal Major Crimes Act. Denespi moved to dismiss the indictment, arguing that the Double Jeopardy Clause barred the consecutive prosecution, but the district court denied the motion. After a jury convicted Denespi, the district court sentenced him to 360 months imprisonment. The Tenth Circuit affirmed. It concluded that the second prosecution in federal court did not constitute double jeopardy because the Ute Mountain Ute tribe's inherent sovereignty was the ultimate source of power undergirding the earlier prosecution in CFR court. We granted certiorari. Part 2 Section A The Double Jeopardy Clause of the Fifth Amendment provides No person shall be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. The clause, by its terms, does not prohibit twice placing a person in jeopardy for the same conduct or actions. Instead, it focuses on whether successive prosecutions are for the same offense. That term, we have explained, was commonly understood in 1791 to mean transgression, that is, the violation or breaking of a law. An offense, then, is defined by a law. And a law is defined by the sovereign that makes it, expressing the interests that the sovereign wishes to vindicate. Because the sovereign source of a law is an inherent and distinctive feature of the law itself, an offense defined by one sovereign is necessarily a different offense from that of another sovereign. That means that the two offenses can be separately prosecuted without offending the double jeopardy clause, even if they have identical elements and could not be separately prosecuted if enacted by a single sovereign. This dual sovereignty principle applies where two entities derive their power to punish from wholly independent sources. The doctrine has come up most frequently in the context of the states. It applies, however, to Indian tribes too. United States v. Wheeler, 1978, is the seminal case. There, a member of the Navajo tribe was convicted in tribal court of violating a provision of the Navajo Tribal Code. He was later charged in federal court with violating a federal statute based on the same underlying conduct. Citing the dual sovereignty doctrine, the court rejected Wheeler's double jeopardy argument. We explained that before Europeans arrived on this continent, tribes were self-governing sovereign political communities with the inherent power to prescribe laws for their members 
and to punish infractions of those laws. While Congress has in certain ways regulated the manner and extent of the tribal power of self-government, Congress did not create that power. When a tribe enacts criminal laws, then, it does so as part of its retained sovereignty and not as an arm of the federal government. Thus, Wheeler's prosecution for a tribal offense did not bar his later prosecution for a federal offense. Our reasoning in Wheeler controls here. Denespi's single act transgressed two laws. The Ute Mountain Ute Codes Assault and Battery Ordinance and the United States Code's Proscription of Aggravated Sexual Abuse in Indian Country. The Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, like the Navajo Tribe in Wheeler, exercised its unique sovereign authority in adopting the tribal ordinance. Likewise, Congress exercised the United States' sovereign power in enacting the federal criminal statute. The two laws, defined by separate sovereigns, therefore proscribe separate offenses. Because Denesby's second prosecution did not place him in jeopardy again for the same offense, that prosecution did not violate the Double Jeopardy Clause. Section B. Denesby agrees with much of this that sovereigns define distinct defenses, that the tribe and the United States are separate sovereigns, and that his prosecutions involved a tribal offense and a federal offense, respectively. But he argues that the dual sovereignty doctrine is concerned not only with who defines the offense, but also with who prosecutes it. In Wheeler, the defendant was initially prosecuted in a tribal court. Denespi, by contrast, was initially prosecuted in a CFR court. While tribal prosecutors in tribal courts indisputably exercise tribal authority, Denespi claims that prosecutors in CFR courts exercise federal authority because they are subject to the control of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. He concludes that he was therefore prosecuted twice by the United States, and that, he insists, violated the Double Jeopardy Clause because the dual sovereignty doctrine does not apply when successive prosecutions are undertaken by a single sovereign, regardless of the source of the power to adopt the criminal codes enforced in each prosecution. We need not sort out whether prosecutors in CFR courts exercise tribal or federal authority because we disagree with Denespi's premise. The Double Jeopardy Clause does not prohibit successive prosecutions by the same sovereign. It prohibits successive prosecutions for the same offense, and as we have already explained, an offense defined by one sovereign is different from an offense defined by another. Thus, even if Denespi is right that the federal government prosecuted his tribal offense, the clause did not bar the federal government from prosecuting him under the Major Crimes Act too. 1. 
Dinespi does not even try to reconcile his position with the text of the clause. Instead, he presents the dual sovereignty doctrine as a carve-out to the rule against double jeopardy and argues that the carve-out does not extend to successive prosecutions by a single sovereign. But Dinespi is wrong to treat the dual sovereignty doctrine as an exception to the clause. Gamble was very clear on this point. Although the dual sovereignty rule is often dubbed as an exception to the double jeopardy right, it is not an exception at all. On the contrary, it follows from the text that defines that right in the first place. The clause does not ask who puts a person in jeopardy. It zeroes in on what the person is put in jeopardy for, the offense. And again, in 1791, offense meant the violation of a law. We have seen no evidence that offense was originally understood to encompass both the violation of the law and the identity of the prosecutor. Treating the identity of the prosecutor as part of the definition of offense is as odd as it sounds. An offense has always referred to the crime itself, which is complete when a person has carried out all of its elements. The law has long recognized, then, that an offense is committed before it is prosecuted. For example, the Constitution says that the trial of all crimes shall be held in the state where the said crimes shall have been committed. And Sir Matthew Hale could say of a man who breaks into a house and steals something, if indicted for the burglary and acquitted, yet he may be indicted of the larceny, for they are several offenses, though committed at the same time. In addition, Chief Justice Marshall, speaking for the court, described a section of the Crimes Act of 1790 as providing that if manslaughter be committed in certain places, the offender may be prosecuted in the federal courts. So Dinespi's proposal would put us in the position of holding that a person's single act constitutes two separate offenses at the time of commission, but that those offenses later become the same offense if a single sovereign prosecutes both. He offers no textual justification for this nonsensical result. 2. With the text against him, the best Dinespi can do is stitch together loose language from our precedent. For example, we have said that two offenses are not the same offense, for double jeopardy purposes, if prosecuted by different sovereigns. In another case, we stated that if an entity's authority to enact and enforce criminal law ultimately comes from Congress, then it cannot follow a federal prosecution with its own. And we have remarked that the crucial determination under the dual sovereignty doctrine is whether the two entities that seek successively to prosecute a defendant for the same course of conduct can be termed separate sovereigns. Read in isolation, these statements help Dinesby's position that the identity of the prosecuting sovereign matters under the dual sovereignty doctrine. Read in context, 
their helpfulness dissipates. None of these cases involves or even mentions the unusual situation of a single sovereign successively prosecuting its own law and that of a different sovereign. This language appears in the context of the usual situation, a sovereign or alleged sovereign prosecuting its own laws, because enactment and enforcement almost always go hand in hand, it is easy to overlook that they are occasionally separated. That is particularly good reason to take the language Genespi offers with a healthy sprinkling of salt. Where it was not important to attend to the difference between enactment and enforcement, it is understandable why we did not. In any event, imprecise statements cannot overcome the holdings of our cases, not to mention the text of the clause, and those authorities make clear that enactment is what counts in determining whether the dual sovereignty doctrine applies. Dinesby points to only one case in which the court dealt with an argument in the neighborhood of his. In Bartkus v. Illinois, 1959, the defendant argued that his acquittal in federal court for a federal offense barred his later conviction in state court for a state offense based on the same underlying conduct. There was a threshold issue of whether to analyze the claim under the Fifth Amendment's Double Jeopardy Clause or the Fourteenth Amendment's Due Process Clause. The Double Jeopardy Clause had not yet been incorporated against the states, but the defendant argued that federal authorities had run his state prosecution, making it federal action to which the clause applied. The court rejected that argument, seeing no basis to say that Illinois, in bringing its prosecution, was merely a tool of the federal authorities, rendering the state prosecution a sham and a cover for a federal prosecution. That resolution meant that the court had no occasion to consider whether the Double Jeopardy Clause would have barred the federal government from separately prosecuting Bartkus for a violation of state law. Instead, we considered whether Bartkus's successful federal and state prosecutions violated due process. Bartkus does not give Dinesby much to go on, as Dinesby himself recognizes. At most, Bartkus acknowledged that a successive federal prosecution would raise a double jeopardy question, yet it did not begin to analyze, much less answer that question. In the end, then, Bartkus is no more help to Dinesby than the other cases on which he relies. 3. Dinesby advances a few other arguments for why the Double Jeopardy Clause barred his second prosecution. None succeeds. First, he notes that the United States has excluded from the string of federal regulatory offenses enforceable in CFR court those felonies that are covered by the Major Crimes Act, and it has done so to avoid the possibility that someone who has committed a serious offense may be immunized from federal prosecution under that act because of the prohibition against double jeopardy by a prosecution in a court of Indian offenses. Dinespi asserts that this limitation borders on a concession that the Double Jeopardy Clause bars his second prosecution. We disagree. 
Federal regulatory crimes are defined by the federal government, so successive prosecutions for a federal regulatory crime and a federal statutory crime present a different double jeopardy question from the one presented here. Next, Denesby argues that permitting successive prosecutions like his does not further the purposes underlying the dual sovereignty doctrine, namely advancing sovereigns' independent interests. Purposes aside, the doctrine follows from the clause's text, which controls. In any event, the tribe's sovereign interest is furthered when its assault and battery ordinance, duly enacted by its governing body as an expression of the tribe's condemnation of that crime, is enforced, regardless of who enforces it. Finally, Denesby asserts that the conclusion we reach might lead to highly troubling results. He suggests that sovereigns might more broadly assume the authority to enforce other sovereigns' criminal laws in order to get two bites at the apple. But there is a constitutional barrier to such cross-enforcement. It does not derive from the Double Jeopardy Clause. As we have explained, the clause does not bar successive prosecutions of distinct offenses, even if a single sovereign prosecutes them. Denesby's single act led to separate prosecutions for violations of a tribal ordinance and a federal statute. Because the tribe and the federal government are distinct sovereigns, those offenses are not the same. Denesby's second prosecution, therefore, did not offend the Double Jeopardy Clause. We affirm the judgment of the Court of Appeals. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.